Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to Behind the Knife, Medical Student and Intern Survival Guide. In this podcast series, we focus on high-yield topics relevant to medical students and surgical interns. My name is Patrick Georgioff. And I'm Vahag Nikolian. And we are your hosts. Today's topic will be abdominal wall hernias. This is another classic general surgery problem that is highly applicable to medical students and junior residents. That's right, Vahag. Let's start with the basics. What is a A hernia. A hernia occurs when an organ protrudes through the wall of the cavity containing it. In this case, we are talking about uh, intra-abdominal contents protruding through the abdominal wall. That's right. And what causes hernias to occur? Well, hernias occur at areas of weakness in the abdominal wall, including congenital areas of weakness like the umbilicus or inguinal canal. They also occur at the site of surgical incisions or traumatic injuries. There are a number of factors that increase the likelihood of developing a hernia as well, including obesity, chronic cough, heavy lifting, ascites, and pregnancy. Essentially, anything that increases intra-abdominal pressure. Other factors that increase the risk of developing a hernia include tobacco use and some genetic syndromes. Exactly. In regards to abdominal wall hernias, the majority are inguinal. Other types of hernias surgeons frequently encounter include incisional, umbilical, and epigastric hernias. Rarely, we also see hernias in the lumbar and femoral regions. So, what are some of the common terms that huge surgeons use uh, to describe hernias, Vahag? All right, so, good question. There are three particularly important terms, incarceration, strangulation, and obstruction. If a hernia is incarcerated, that means it cannot be pushed back into the abdomen. Another word to describe an incarcerated hernia is non-reducible. If a hernia is strangulated, that means it's squeezed so tightly into the hernia defect that it's become ischemic. And obstruction refers to blockage of the bowels as a result of herniation into the defect. Exactly. So whenever you examine a patient, you want to take note of those three features. Is it incarcerated? Is it strangulated? And does the patient have signs or symptoms of obstruction? These features, in addition to the patient's symptoms and overall discomfort, are particularly important in determining whether or not the patient needs surgery. All right, great. So with that, let's go on and do some cases. Okay, Vahag, uh, you are the surgery resident at clinic and meet with a new patient referred to you for evaluation of an um umbilical hernia. She's 35 years old with a history of obesity and multiple pregnancies. She was referred to your clinic after she was evaluated by her PCP, who noted a bulge at her umbilicus. What do you want to know? All right. So as with all patients, the evaluation begins with a thorough history and physical. In your history, you want to know when the patient first noticed the bulge and get a sense of the symptoms associated with it. Specifically, if the patient feels like the bulge is reducible, if it ever causes pain, if the patient ever has episodes of bowel obstruction, or if the patient has ever been hospitalized because of issues related to the hernia. Second, you want to review the patient's past medical and past surgical history to understand if there are other reasons why they have a hernia, some of which may be modifiable. All right, good. So the patient states that the hernia has progressively increased in size over the course of the last few years. Uh, She first noticed it during her uh, initial pregnancy and has since become uh, more prominent. 
Uh, she notes that there is very little pain associated with it. At times, though, uh, she feels that the bulge is more obvious, and this makes her very self-conscious. She denies any obstructive symptoms and has never been hospitalized, but has been told by her PCP that she should have the hernia fixed before it becomes a bigger problem. The patient has no significant past medical history besides obesity. Her BMI is 32, and she has no history of abdominal surgery. Okay, I'd move forward with a physical exam, focusing on the abdomen. Here you want to evaluate the patient for any evidence of previous surgeries and develop a better understanding of the hernia, specifically the size of the defect, whether it's reducible, if it's painful, and if there are any overlying skin changes. You can do provocative examinations as well by having the patient stand up or valsalva to make the hernia more prominent. Okay, on exam, she has a 3 by 3 centimeter round defect at the umbilicus. The hernia contents are fully reducible, and you're able to palpate the fascial edges of the defect, excuse me, the fascial margins. On uh, Valsalva, the ball just made larger. There are no overlying skin changes, and the patient has minimal discomfort while you examine her. Once you conclude the exam, the patient asks if she can have it repaired. So how do you go about making the decision to operate on a patient with a reducible ventral hernia like this? Okay, that's a great question. Ventral hernias in and of themselves are not dangerous. However, the development of incarcerated and worse yet strangulated bowel is an emergency. If at all possible, it's best to avoid emergency hernia surgery as your repair options are limited and less durable in an emergency setting. Therefore, for patients like these who are symptomatic and good operative candidates, they should be offered a repair. Great. So what are some of the considerations you need to think about when it comes to the surgical approach? All right. When thinking about ventral hernia, you have a number of decisions to make. These include one, open versus laparoscopic approach. Two, whether a mesh should be used. Three, if mesh is to be used, the type of mesh that is most appropriate. Four, where you'll place the mesh. And five, if the abdominal wall will require a complex approach to allow for reapproximating the fascia. Okay, what's the difference between open and laparoscopic repair? For a ventral hernia like this, either an open or laparoscopic approach is acceptable. Laparoscopic repair, however, results in lower recurrence rates, less pain, and a shorter length of stay in the hospital. And what about mesh? Uh, there are two big categories of mesh synthetic and biologic. Right, so synthetic mesh includes material like polypropylene, polyester, or polygalactin, aka vicryl. Most synthetic meshes are permanent, but some, like vicryl, are absorbable. Synthetic mesh comes in different weights and pore sizes. The major downside of permanent mesh is the risk of infection. If a permanent synthetic mesh becomes infected, it can be difficult to treat with antibiotics and may actually require surgical excision. Also, if a piece of synthetic mesh is going to be exposed to bowel, it's a good idea to place a piece of mesh that has a non-stick coating on one side, like collagen or polyethylene glycol. This prevents adhesions. In regards to biologic meshes, the majority are derived from human, pig, or cow dermis. There are also newer biologic meshes that are derived from non-animal sources. The main advantage of biologic mesh is that they can be used in infected fields. The downside is that they are all temporary, as they are eventually absorbed. The decision of what kind of mesh to use is very complex and largely based on surgeon preference. Yeah, that last point is particularly important. It is a complicated decision 
that is very much uh, based on search and preference. And so what are you going to recommend for this patient, Bahag? So this patient has a reducible umbilical hernia measuring around 3 centimeters. In select cases, primary repair is an option. For example, hernias that are less than 1 or 2 centimeters. A primary repair includes the use of sutures without mesh to reapproximate the fascia. With that said, high quality data now shows that even for ventral hernias that are less than 2 centimeters, recurrence rates are high enough following primary repair that there may be a role for mesh even in small defects. In our patient's case, she has a larger hernia measuring 3 centimeters. She's also obese. These two factors alone make me favor a mesh closure. Great. And what type of mesh would you like to use for this patient? For a clean uh, elective case like this one, I would use synthetic permanent mesh. Okay. And uh, just in the OR the other day, uh, one of our attendings was uh, asking the medical students some questions, and they wanted to know, ask the medical student how you, you go about sizing mesh. All right. So the goal is to have at least about five centimeters of overlap between the mesh and the fascia circumferentially. Great. And then a little more complicated question, where are you going to put the mesh? Yeah. So there are three different locations, uh, essentially, onlay, interlay, and underlay. This refers to the location of the mesh relative to the abdominal wall. In general, onlays, which are placed on top of the outermost fascial layer, are not used as they don't allow for a durable repair. An interlay uh, places the mesh between layers of the abdominal wall, like a sandwich. Uh, the most common interlay procedure for a midline ventral hernia is called the rib stopa repair where the mesh is placed behind the rectus muscle but in front of the posterior rectus sheath and the peritoneum. An underlay places the mesh below all of the layers of the abdominal wall. Simple laparoscopic repairs in which the mesh covers the hernia defect are considered underlays. Great. And uh, one other thing, do we need imaging for this patient? Uh, CT scan is the preferred imaging modality for evaluation of abdominal wall hernias. Uh, ultrasound, on the other hand, has very limited roles. More often than not, though, imaging is not required. For small, relatively simple hernias like this one, a CT would not be needed as it would not really change the operative approach. Okay, so you discuss the case with the patient and book her for a laparoscopic umbilical hernia repair with mesh underlay, and that's going to happen in the next few weeks. Unfortunately, uh, the, one week later, the patient presents to the emergency department with a painful bulge at the hernia site. That's really unfortunate. So now we're dealing with a very different situation. First and foremost, uh, you want to go down, evaluate the patient, and assess their need for resuscitation. The biggest concern I have here is uh, for any incarceration and possibly strangulated bowel. All right, so you go to see the patient, and she does not appear ill, uh, but she is uncomfortable. She's afebrile, and her vital signs are normal. What would you like to do next? So I'd begin with a focused history. Specifically, I want to know when the pain started, if she's had any fevers, if she's vomiting, or if she's passing any flatus. Also, I'd want to evaluate and see if she's noticed any skin changes over the hernia. Yeah, so just to be clear, you want to ask if she's passed flatus or if she's passed any stool and, and when the last time that was. And that's to look for obstruction. And uh, the patient states that her pain started about eight hours ago after a long day on her feet. Uh, the hernia, which is uh, was normally, and before this, easily reducible, is bulging out, and she hasn't been able to push it back in. And she's attempted a couple different things, uh, different ways to uh, uh, reduce the hernia, including laying in her bed uh, and trying to relax, but that really didn't make a difference. 
And over the past, past few hours, the area has become more sensitive and painful, and the skin overlying the hernia is now red. Okay. So uh, what does her physical exam show? Yeah, her, her abdominal examination is much different than when you saw her in clinic just one week ago. Uh, she now has abdominal distension with tympani. Uh, the hernia is also bulging out farther, and it's hard and extremely tender to the touch, and it's uh, not reducible. And you do note, as mentioned earlier, that there is overlying erythema. Okay. Uh, do we have any labs for the patient? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, labs are notable for a white count of 18,000 with a left shift and a lactate of 3.2. Now, as you're finishing up with the patient, uh, the nurse comes to tell you that they are ready to transfer uh, uh, our patient to the radiology suite for a CT scan. Okay. So, well, at this point, I know that the patient has an incarcerated ventral hernia, and I'm concerned that it is strangulated as well. Signs and symptoms of strangulation include severe pain on exam, overlying erythema, elevated white blood cell count, elevated lactate, and signs of systemic illness, including tachycardia, tachypnea, and hypotension, among other things. To be honest, the CT scan would not change my management, and I would go ahead and cancel it. At this point, I would tell the patient they have a surgical emergency, and we should go to the operating room to evaluate the hernia contents, reduce it, and repair the fascial defect. All right, that all seems very reasonable, but... Uh, the patient is wondering why this is a surgical emergency and if it's possible to reduce the hernia right here in the ED. Uh, one of the ED nurses told her they could just give her some relaxing medications to uh, facilitate this. Okay. Unfortunately, uh, this is a far different situation than our initial encounter in clinic. Our goal here is to minimize injury to the bowel. If we reduce this hernia in the ED and the bowel is dead, we've converted a controlled infection into an uncontrolled infection that could result in abdominal sepsis. So the patient's best option is to move forward with an operative exploration in order to assess the bowel and repair the defect. Yeah, that's uh, 100% correct. So just to summarize, the patient is now presenting with a surgical emergency. Uh, the decision to incision is based on the history and physical exam. Vahag, is there anything else you'd like to do before quickly moving to the operating room? Yes, I would uh, do three things. One, insert a NG tube, a nasogastric tube, to decompress the bowel. Two, start broad-spectrum antibiotics that cover gram-negatives and anaerobes like zosin or miropenem. And three, fluid resuscitate the patient with lactated ringers. All right, right on. So a little side note, uh, because uh, we play with uh, NG tubes so much in, on our general surgery services, um, there are a variety of uh, nasogastric tubes that are used in the hospital setting. And when the goal is to decompress the stomach, we use a Salem sump catheter, which is a large bore NG tube with a double lumen. And one lumen allows for the aspiration into a vacuum of, of gastric contents, and the other allows for venting to reduce negative pressure and prevent gastric mucosa from being drawn up, sucked up actually into the catheter. It's uh, important that the venting port remain clear. And once an NG tube is placed, it's usually a good idea and often hospital policy to get an abdominal x-ray to confirm appropriate positioning. And you want to ensure that the tube is in the stomach before you flush anything like medications uh, into it. All right, Vahag, the NG tube is placed and you get immediate return of 1.5 liters of bilious fluid. Uh, the patient also gets a dose of antibiotics and one liter of fluid. Now, do you plan to perform a laparoscopic hernia repair like we had decided after evaluating the patient in clinic, or are you going to modify your operative approach? Uh, that's some great questions there. Management changes uh, now that we're dealing with an obstruction and possibly strangulated bowel. The obstruction means that the bowel will be distended. 
This can limit our ability to safely perform a laparoscopic operation. This decision is very much surgeon-specific and a laparoscopic approach may be feasible, but a safe answer is to perform an open operation. Next, you have to recognize that you may need to perform a bowel resection, meaning you are dealing with a contaminated operative field. This increases your risk for surgical site infections considerably. If in fact the patient has compromised bowel and requires a bowel resection, I would perform a primary repair. You could also choose to use an absorbable piece of mesh. This could be synthetic pieces like Vicryl or a biologic mesh, for example one derived from acellular porcine dermis. Regardless of which approach is used, the patient is at a higher risk of hernia recurrence when compared to an elective laparoscopic repair with permanent mesh. Okay. So you take the patient to the operating room and perform an exploratory laparotomy. You dissect out the hernia and you find there's 10 centimeters of frankly necrotic small bowel that had been strangulated within the hernia. Unfortunately, there's a small perforation with spillage of enteric content as well. You resect the dead small bowel, perform a primary stapled anastomosis, and thoroughly irrigate the area. On repeat evaluation, the hernia defect measures 4 centimeters in size. You find that the fascia is able to be uh, reapproximated fairly easily and opt to perform a primary repair without mesh. The patient goes on to do well in the post-operative setting and is discharged from the hospital six days later, and she has no major complications. All right, so let's review this case and some of the decision-making points we covered. In this case, we were dealing with an incarcerated and likely strangulated hernia, which required an emergent operation. We optimized the patient in the emergency department with IV fluids, antibiotics, and an NG tube. We proceeded to the operating room and did not attempt to reduce the hernia in the emergency department. Intraoperatively, we found strangulated necrotic bowel that required resection and primary anastomosis. Because of the high risk uh, for infection, we performed a primary repair without mesh, knowing that the risk of recurrence was high. Yeah, that's a, that's a great summary, uh, V. And in this case, I, it would also be important to discuss the relatively high risk of recurrence with the patient themselves uh, in a very kind of clear way in order to set expectations. Absolutely. So setting patient expectations is a very important element of surgery. Letting them know that they are at a higher risk for complications can help them recognize problems when they occur. Also, it helps to build a relationship and an understanding that when you're seeing them through these complications, you'll be there the whole way. Okay, Vahog, so a few years pass and your days as an acute care surgery chief resident are long gone. You are now in clinic for your elective general surgery practice as an attending, and this patient is returning to see you for an evaluation of a ventral hernia. Yeah, that sucks. I thought I was out of the woods. Yeah, not just yet. So, so she comes to your clinic and tells you that three months after her last operation, she developed a similar bulge, and that this bulge has grown progressively larger. Uh, she has not required any hospitalizations for the hernia, but it's really impacting her life in a major way. Uh, she wears a binder whenever she is out and about, but as soon as she takes it off, her hernia bulge uh, pushes out. And it's uh, painful for her to stand for prolonged periods of time, and this is very much uh, limiting her activity. Because of these factors, she has gained some weight and feels like the hernia is taking over her life. Her primary care physician ordered a CT scan and referred her to you for possible repair. Okay, so this is not an uncommon scenario. As we mentioned before, the patient's initial hernia repair was at high risk for recurrence. I would review the patient's history to better understand her symptoms and to uh, then proceed with an examination. Okay, so the patient describes a symptomatic hernia that is larger than before. Again, she's obese, her BMI is now 34, but she has no other major medical problems. 
Unfortunately, she has recently taken up smoking. Uh, on exam, the patient has a 9 by 8 centimeter hernia with reducible intra-abdominal contents. Uh, you review her CT scan and find that the hernia contains small bowel and colon. What are the surgical options for her? All right, so this is a very common presentation for hernia patients. Clearly, the patient's hernia is interfering with her life. This is an indication for repair. That being said, it's important to optimize the patient as much as possible for this elective operation. This includes lifestyle modifications like diet, exercise, and smoking cessation. Um, for many of these patients, obesity and smoking can negatively impact wound healing. So to maximize our potential for success, a thorough discussion with the patient is necessary. Optimization can sometimes take weeks or months to ensure that we have done everything we can to have the best outcome for our patient. Yeah, I agree. This is, this is uh, really important. And pre, something called prehabilitation clinics, uh, which are a relatively new concept, are becoming uh, more popular uh, across the country. So you look at the CT scan, you see the 9-centimeter hernia defect, but you also see significant loss of abdominal domain. Now, loss of abdominal domain refers to the lateralization and contraction of the abdominal wall, resulting in less intra-abdominal space. Bringing the abdominal wall together in this patient will require a significant amount of tension. To repair this hernia, a more complex approach is required. Most complex hernia repairs follow some key principles. This includes, one, full reduction of the hernia and its contents, Two, reducing the tension on the fascial closure by releasing selective layers of the abdominal wall muscle or fascia. And three, reinforcing the fascial closure with a large piece of mesh that allows for significant overlap between mesh and fascia. All right, so for students on general surgery, this is a really nice opportunity to review some cool operations. Describing these surgeries can be challenging, but using surgical atlases can give you a good sense of the abdominal wall anatomy and the different methods that can be used to repair large fascial defects. The two most commonly performed operations in this setting are the anterior component separation, which relies on releasing the external oblique fascia, and the posterior component separation, which relies on releasing the transversus abdominis muscle. The posterior component separation is commonly called a transversus abdominis release, or TAR. All right, Bog, fantastic work. Uh, we covered a lot here. Uh, hernia surgery is complex because it's really wide-ranging. Uh, there also isn't a lot uh, of great data out there. So when we talk about these techniques and mesh choices, etc., an awful lot of this is based on surgeon preference alone. And one exciting development uh, in, in the hernia world is the use of the robot for, for surgical repair, which allows for maneuvers that are unable to be performed with standard laparoscopic instruments. All right, let's switch things up a bit and talk about adult inguinal hernias. An inguinal hernia is one type of groin hernia, and the other is, is a femoral hernia. Inguinal hernias are farther divided into indirect and direct types. An indirect hernia occurs when intra-abdominal content squeezes through the deep inguinal ring and into the inguinal canal. A direct hernia occurs when intra-abdominal contents bulge into the floor of the inguinal canal. One way to tell which is which uh, is the hernia's relationship to the inferior epigastric vessels. Indirect hernias are lateral to the inferior epigastric vessels, uh, while um, uh, a direct hernias are medial. Excuse me, so I'm going to say that again. Indirect hernias are lateral to the inferior epigastric uh, vessels, while direct hernias are medial. That's a, a common, common pimp question. Yeah, that's right. So inguinal hernias also occur much more frequently in men than in women. Yeah, uh, seven times more likely in men to be exact. Uh, v, how does a person with an inguinal hernia typically present? 
Okay, so they usually present with pain and fullness in the groin that may extend into their scrotum. The discomforts oftentimes worse after standing for long periods of time and or with strenuous activity. Uh, the diagnosis is confirmed with physical exam. It's important to note that imaging is not necessary. The examiner should identify the external ring, place their finger within it, and then ask the patient to cough or valsalva. If you feel a bulge, then you've diagnosed the patient with an inguinal hernia. All right, yet another common pimping question. Can you tell if the patient has a direct or indirect hernia on exam? Typically, you can't. Okay, so don't be tricked with that one. Uh, it's also important not to confuse an inguinal hernia with a femoral hernia, which is identified below the inguinal ligament on physical exam. Right, so this is because the femoral hernia occurs when intra-abdominal contents bulge through your femoral canal. All right, uh, V, uh, what is in the differential for groin pain besides hernias? Yeah, sure. So you want to rule out other things like hydroceles, varicoceles, and testicular torsion. Uh, groin pain can also occur in the setting of musculoskeletal injuries and even kidney stones. Great. Uh, so let's say you diagnose a patient, uh, this patient with an inguinal hernia. And what are the indications for surgical repair? Well, the only absolute indication for surgical repair of an inguinal hernia is incarcerated or strangulated bowel. The rest are all relative indications. Right. So if the patient is asymptomatic, there is no uh, absolute need for repair. You know, however, if they are symptomatic, the decision to proceed with repair is entirely based on patient preference. There are multiple studies that show that watchful waiting is a safe approach. More specifically, the risk of eventual incarceration and or strangulation of bowel is sufficiently low that surgery is not indicated unless the patient desires it. This requires a detailed discussion with the patient about the risks and benefits of surgery. Let's assume the patient is very symptomatic and he wants to proceed with a hernia repair. What options are there? All right, so that's a great question, Patrick. Uh, as with ventral hernia repairs, inguinal hernias can be repaired with an open or laparoscopic approach. The gold standard for open repair is called the Liechtenstein tension-free repair with mesh. This involves the placement of a small piece of permanent mesh to cover the inguinal canal floor and recreate the internal inguinal ring. The operation is quick, can be performed under local anesthesia, and the risk of recurrence is low. Non-mesh repairs include Bassini, McVeigh, and shoulder repairs, and in general should only be performed by experienced surgeons and when mesh is contraindicated, for example, when the surgical field is infected. All right, now the open inguinal hernia repair is a classic case for students and interns, and for that reason, we're going to go ahead and cover the key steps of this operation here. To begin, a 5-centimeter or approximately 5-centimeter incision is made two finger breadths above the inguinal ligament, extending from the lateral edge of the pubic symphysis and moving towards the anterior superior iliac spine. After dissecting through the subcutaneous tissue, the external oblique fascia is carefully opened, starting at the external ring and extending to the level of the underlying internal inguinal ring, taking care not to injure the underlying ilioinguinal nerve. At this point, you should be looking at the inguinal canal itself. Again, an indirect hernia occurs when intra-abdominal contents squeeze through the deep inguinal ring and into the inguinal canal. A direct hernia occurs when intra-abdominal contents bulge up right at you through the floor of the inguinal canal. Next, the hernia sac and contents are carefully reduced and the spermatic cord is isolated. The spermatic cord includes the vas deferens, which looks and feel like a, feels like a noodle, the testicular artery, the venous pampiniform plexus, 
the cremasteric muscles, and the genital branch of the genital femoral nerve. Finally, the repair is performed by sewing the mesh into place. The mesh is, mesh is most frequently attached to the periosteum or the pubic symphysis and sewn to the shelving edge of the inguinal ligament laterally and the conjoint tendon medially. The lateral end of the mesh is then split and wrapped around the sp spermatic cord as it enters the canal. This is done to recreate the internal ring and to prevent an indirect hernia. The external oblique fascia and skin are then closed. Awesome. Awesome description, Patrick. So, all right, so that's a nice summary of the open inguinal hernia repair. But what about laparoscopic repair? There are two types of laparoscopic repairs. The totally extraperitoneal repair, called TEP, or the transabdominal preperitoneal repair, called TAP. The TEP repair is particularly interesting because the surgeon actually never enters the abdomen. Instead, the preperitoneal space is insufflated and direct indirect and femoral hernia defects are clearly visualized. The hernia is reduced and mesh is placed into the space sandwiched between the peri, uh, peritoneum as well as the abdominal wall. In contrast, the tap repair is like other intra-abdominal operations in that you work within the abdominal cavity. For this surgery, the peritoneum is cut and folded down to expose the same space access during a tap repair. Following hernia reduction, the mesh is placed and the peritoneum is sewn back into place. To complete either of these operations, a thorough understanding of the anatomy is required. Yeah, and when compared head-to-head, -head, open and laparoscopic inguinal hernia repairs have similar recurrence rates, but laparoscopic repair results in quicker return to activity and less pain. Some situations where a laparoscopic repair may be favored include bilateral, excuse me, may be favored include bilateral hernias, recurrent hernias, and those that involve the femoral canal. Awesome. So that wraps up our review of hernias. Why don't we run through some quick-fire questions that may come up during your surgical rotation? All right, V. In a patient with a ventral hernia and bowel strangulation, what type of mesh should you use for repair should you need it? Absorbable mesh, preferably, such as Vicryl or Biologic. Okay. For patients with complex abdominal wall hernias and loss of domain, what approaches can be used to reduce tension on your hernia closure? Most commonly, we're going to use component separations or releases. All right. What defines an indirect hernia? So that type of hernia is lateral to the inferior epigastric vessels, and the hernia sac enters the inguinal canal via the internal ring. Okay. And what nerve lies on top of the spermatic cord and can be injured during an open inguinal hernia repair? The ilioinguinal nerve. All right. For extra credit... What nerve lies within the spermatic cord? The genital branch of the genital femoral uh, nerve. Great. And which have lower rates of hernia recurrence? Open tension-free repairs with mesh or laparoscopic repair with mesh? And this is in regards to the inguinal hernias. All right. So in an experienced hands, they're essentially equivalent. Excellent. All right. Well, we hope you found this useful. Uh, as always, please reach out to us via email, which can be found in the show notes with suggestions and topic requests. Until next time, take care and dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.